stand for the reading of the word. I'll be reading from the ESV, Acts 17, 1 through 10, and then Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, and as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them in the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, who I proclaim, proclaim to you, is that Christ? And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, and did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed and when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now turning to Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded to you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the world. Amen. Would you join me in prayer? <clears throat> Father, thank you for this morning again that we might worship as we gather together. Father, I pray as we in your word, as we look at this issue of discipleship, you'd use it to encourage us. Father, for those who are involved in discipleship already, I pray that this would be an encouragement, um, a refresher for them. For those who have been looking at this, I pray that this would be intriguing, that they would understand a new light and a new way what it is that you desire to use this for in the lives of other believers. So, Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. I pray that it would ring true this morning as your spirit has his way in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> January 13th, 1982. I was driving home from an afternoon appointment when a news flash came across my radio that Air Florida Flight 90 had just crashed into the Potomac River. There were 74 passengers, five crew on board. It had been snowing all day in Washington. In fact, the airport had been closed most of the morning. So you can imagine flights were backed up, both coming and going from the airport that day. This flight to Florida had sat on the runway too long and its, its wings had become iced over. The pilots failed to go back and have it de-iced. And so on takeoff, there was too much weight on the wings. They couldn't get the lift they needed. They probably reached three or 400 feet in the air and came back down. 
as he came down and skimmed the 14th Street Bridge, which, which crosses the Potomac River. Killed four people, destroyed seven vehicles, and then crashed into the icy Potomac. Passengers <clears throat> were now in the water, so it was a race against time. There's a fellow by the name of Roger Olean. He was a sheet metal foreman at St. Elizabeth's Hospital. He had just crossed the bridge on his way home when he saw the plane go down. He hurried down the street, pulled over, ran to the water's edge where other motorists were already making a rope out of trash bags, diapers, battery, battery cables, anything they could get their hands on. And he grabbed the end of the rope and into the river he went. But he couldn't make any headway and they pulled him back in. Again, he grabbed the end of the rope and went back in. And one of the reports said he struggled for 20 minutes to get that short distance to the middle of the river where the plane had gone down. You could see the passengers in the water struggling. One of the reports said he got about five yards from the passengers when a, a rescue helicopter arrived and dropped the rope and began to drag them one at a time to the shore. They rescued just five people. Roger Olin was dragged back in by his rope. He'd broken two toes climbing over these huge chunks of ice. His car had been ticketed and towed away, and he was sent off to the hospital with the others because of hypothermia. He was asked during an interview, Roger, why did you do that? You didn't even reach them. And his response was, I didn't want to spend the rest of my life wondering if I could make a difference. When they asked the passengers who survived how they made it, to a person they said, it was that man, he just kept coming. He saved our lives. <clears throat> what happened that day on that snowy, icy day on the Potomac has so many parallels to discipleship. <clears throat> oh, I know it's not a life and death physically, but the impact is just as real. If I asked you in a survey today, how many of you could point to a person who stepped into your life when you first came to know Christ? Maybe it was a person who led you to Christ, introduced you to him. Maybe it was a neighbor or a, a colleague at work or someone from church. And they engaged with you and they prayed with you and they, they opened the scriptures and helped you understand them and they pointed you to new scriptures and they hung with you when you faded for a few days or a few weeks and came looking for you. You're probably thinking about that person, and most of you, if you are, you're probably smiling. But for many of you, like me, I didn't have somebody that stepped into my life when I first came to Christ. And I can look back in my shy teenage years when I made that decision. I carried for years this, the doubts and the questions that were never answered, the spiritual insecurities. You see, I grew up in an era and a time and a place when people just, it was too awkward to talk about spiritual things. And so I had very little input, and it would have changed my life so much. It wasn't until later in college that some friends got a hold of me and began to help me sort through the scriptures and understand what God was doing in my life. Seven weeks ago, Austin began this series on the nature of the church, ecclesiology. And so we've looked at these things that began in this diagram with repentance, turning from the world, turning from sin, turning to Christ, following him. And then pillars, five pillars, corporate worship, personal devotions, small groups, service, evangelism, and today, discipleship. 
You know, many of us have different concepts of what discipleship is, and our best place to start would be go back to the verse that we read, verses, in Matthew 28. This is Jesus' parting comments to his disciples. Let me read them. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, when we talk about discipleship, there's, there's an overlap. It, it's connected to evangelism. It's connected to other aspects of these pillars. And so they, they do have some connection and overlap. <clears throat> but we're left at needing to define what is disciple-making. What does it mean to make a disciple? I find there's many definitions out there. This one I think is most helpful. By discipleship.org, a very, very uh, a good ministry. Disciple-making is entered into relationships to intentionally help people follow Jesus, be changed by Jesus, and join the mission of Jesus. Disciple-making includes the whole process from conversion through maturation and multiplication. You know, discipleship kind of kicks in at a lot of different spots in a person's walk with God. For me, it was three or four years down the road after I came to Christ. Too bad it hadn't been earlier. For others, it may be a time where they've stalled out or kind of gotten kind of... Um, things have slowed down in their Christian life and they're a little frustrated and they need to have a fresh look at what it means to walk with Jesus. For others, it's a brand new convert. <clears throat> and so I think it's, it's important to know that it's not real clear-cut of exactly how it should operate in every sense of the, of the matter. But John MacArthur, teacher and pastor <clears throat> and author, makes this comment about these verses about discipleship that I think is, causes us to pause. This passage is the climax and major focal point not only of the gospel, but of the entire New Testament. It is not an exaggeration to say that in its broadest sense, it is the focal point of all Scripture, Old Testament, as well as New. In other words, <clears throat> Jesus handed this task of reaching and teaching new believers and growing believers into the hands of everyday people who walk with Jesus. It's not reserved for pastors and seminary graduates and Bible teachers. It's for folks like you and me that simply walk along with these other believers as they get their feet on the ground. Now, as you know, the scriptures do not give us, unfortunately for some, a nice, neat, clean chapter of 10 steps in how to do discipleship, right? It's, it's not that laid out for 10 steps. But even better, what we do have is the example of Jesus mentoring, discipling 12 men. So you go through the Gospels and observe what he did. Then you go to the book of Acts and you find what his disciples did in ministry. And then you spend much of your time in the other letters of the New Testament with Paul and Timothy and see the pattern of how they made disciples. And it really becomes encouraging because it's far simpler than we make it out to be. Far simpler. We read Acts 17 this morning. I think what happened in Thessalonica is a great example of looking for a pattern of how someone discipled new believers in the faith. And so we have the example of Paul, and it gives us a, just a wonderful pattern. So <clears throat> what I'd like to do this morning is look at what happened in Thessalonica. You have a map here. You see Thessalonica is a, a seaport. 
It was, it was located on what was called the Ignatian Way. It was kind of an east-west thoroughfare, if you will, for commerce and traffic. But it was a city of 200,000 people, incredibly corrupt city, morally corrupt. It was loaded with cults and different religions. Now, there were enough Jews in town, they had their own synagogue. So when Paul arrived, he went to that synagogue. But something happened before that. He was up in the city of Philippi, just to the right, to the northeast. When he was in Philippi, that would be chapter 16 in Acts, there was a tremendous response to the gospel. He saw his first convert, Lydia, come to Christ there in Europe. His ministry grew, it expanded, and the city leaders didn't like it. So they took Paul and Silas, they beat him up, they put him in stocks, they put them in jail, humiliated them. God moved in amazing ways in that jail. They were released, but the city leaders said, out, out of town. So they moved on down the road to Thessalonica. When they got to Thessalonica, as we read this morning, he immediately went into the synagogue where he could preach the gospel for three weeks or three Sabbaths. So we know that he was in town for at least three weeks. There are some other passages in the New Testament that give us an implication that it was probably longer. And so best guess is three weeks to three months. It's still a very short time to help these new converts become grounded in the gospel. His ministry grew. Again, city leaders didn't like it. Told him to leave town. Threatened him. So the brothers took him 50 miles down the road to Berea. When he got to Berea, what did he do? Back to the synagogue. This guy doesn't learn, right? Keeps getting beat up, keeps going back. He preaches. Many come to Christ. But what happened is the religious leaders up in Thessalonica didn't like it, and they came down to Berea, caused a fuss, sent him out of town. So the brothers now took Paul and Silas all the way down to Athens, which is about 150 miles south. When Paul gets to Athens, the guy's worried. What has happened to my new converts back in Thessalonica? And so he sends Timothy back. He knows he can't go back in town. Timothy goes back into town, spends time teaching, encouraging, and then brings a report back to Paul. When he gets to Paul, and Paul reads the report and gets this record of what was happening in the city, he was ecstatic. He was thrilled. He was relieved because his converts were thriving in the faith. So what did he do? He wrote them a letter. He writes to them this letter of 1 Thessalonians, and he is overjoyed. So if you would turn to 1 Thessalonians, I want to read a few verses from the opening chapter that gives us a little insight into what was going on in these people's lives as a result of Paul's ministry. I'm reading for New American Standard. If you have ESV, we're pretty close, so you should be able to follow okay. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, I'll start in verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God our Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. 
they were thriving. In fact, so much that the word went out across what's now common day Greece, all across the territory of what God was doing in their lives. Now, this is one of Paul's most intensely personal, engaging letters that he wrote. And you pick that up when you read, you can sit down today or tomorrow and read this entire first letter in about four or five minutes. And, and you get this sense of his commitment to them as friends by what was happening in their lives. <clears throat> when you look at this, what happened in Thessalonica, it gives us a picture of what new believers and young believers need in their lives to walk consistently with Christ. And so <clears throat> what I'd like to do is look at this and pull out some passages in 1 Thessalonians that give us an understanding of three ingredients in Paul's disciple-making. Three simple ingredients that take place in his disciple-making. Let me begin with this initiative. Paul took initiative. I'll begin in chapter 2, the first two verses. You yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you is not in vain. But after we'd already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amidst much opposition. Jump over to chapter 3, the first two verses. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. Paul took the initiative. It didn't matter if he was rejected or received. He took the initiative. And I think it's because he recognized the spiritual needs in people's lives, whether they're believers or non-believers. He came with a message, but he took the initiative. And when he couldn't go, he wrote him a letter and sent his best friend, Timothy, his young protege, to deal with their needs. But Paul took initiative. Secondly, the ingredient that I would say comes out of this is friendship. Or relationships. Chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having thus a fond affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. Just as you, jump down to 11 and 12. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. What came out of Paul's ministry were deep, deep relationships. And it was almost cyclical. As he built relationships and ministered to their needs, the relationships deepened. And as the relationships deepened, his commitment to them to instill in them what it meant to walk by faith became all the more intense. And so relationships are so central to discipleship. In fact, if relationship doesn't happen, probably not much will happen in discipleship. It kind of ends up just being knowledge. But rather, when people begin to interact over those spiritual issues, it deepens their commitment to one another. And what happens, what may have begun by a formal Bible study, now turns into a relationship. So it's no longer a burden or responsibility it's carrying on with a brother or a sister in our walk with God. Back to Roger Olean on the, uh, on the river with the ice and the crash. When he was interviewed, he made an interesting comment to his interviewer. He said, 
When they pulled me back in, I realized that I loved them. Funny comment. When he never touched them. He didn't even get closer than five yards from them. He didn't know any of their names. But when they pulled me back in, I realized I loved them. You see, something happens in discipleship and in mentoring and encouraging other younger believers that, that doesn't just happen casually. That, that expenditure of commitment and, and, and input and encouragement cements a relationship like nothing else. I have friends from 45 years ago who will pick up on a phone call now as we did 45 years ago because of that discipleship relationship. Relationships are central to disciple making. Several years ago, I, I want to say maybe 15 years ago, there was a young couple who came to our church. They had just graduated from Cornell University. They met at Cornell. They got married there. They were both strong in their faith. They jumped into everything we were doing here at church. They had taken a job in the same company here in Cleveland. She's an American woman. He's Indian. I think her dad either led him to Christ or was instrumental in, in mentoring, discipling him. When they came to the church, uh, they were just such a delightful couple. They were excited about their faith. They wanted to be involved. One of the things I was doing at the time was putting together a, an outreach here at the church using some of the Cleveland Browns players. And McCool loved sports, and so McCool, the husband, said, can I be part of the team? And so I got to know McCool through this. We worked for several months putting this together. One day I said to McCool, I said, I have an extra ticket to the Browns game. Would you like to go? Now, he grew up on soccer and rugby in India, and so he didn't know much about football. But he jumped at it. So we went to the Browns game, and picture this. We sat for three hours in that ball game while he asked questions about everything from uniforms to penalties to points to why that guy is throwing his helmet on the ground to anything that happened in the ball game. And it, it was such fun because I knew a little bit more about the game than he did, having grown up in America. And we just talked about the game the whole three hours. And he loved it. Take that picture and just shift it right over here into discipleship. That's discipleship. It's a couple of people sitting with the scriptures. You may have a book or a system that you're working through, but you're focused on the same thing. One person's maybe a few miles down the road than the other one. And so the one may be asking more questions than the other one. But you're going through the truths together and seeing where it fits and what makes sense of what's going on in the scriptures. That's discipleship. It's so simple. And so McCool was a great encouragement that way. I just have never forgotten that day because of the impact as he was trying to learn what was going on, just like discipleship. So initiative, friendships that go deep, and thirdly, content. Content. I have a picture up here of five themes that come out of the book or the letter to First Thessalonians. Five themes. Now, why is this important? Because it's a group of young believers who need to get their feet on the ground who do not have the scriptures like we do. But Paul was intent in grounding them in the faith so they could walk consistently with God. So it must have been important of what he taught. And when you read the letter, he refers back to what he taught them when he was with them, and he adds to it. 
So five themes. First one was assurance of salvation. Pretty much is chapter one. He gives about 10 evidences in there that they truly were believers following Christ. And he encourages them in that. And he, he notices it and he, and he makes it evident to them. Secondly, was growing in faith. Look at chapter three, verses nine and 10. For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy which we rejoice before our God on your account? As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that may we, we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith. They had saving faith. They'd truly come to know Christ, but he wanted them to know how to trust God as they walked now, especially in the midst of opposition. Fourth, and, and by the way, he brings this up several times in the letter about wanting to complete their faith. Same way with this third one that they should increase in their love for others. He wanted them to understand how to love people. And it comes up often. Look at chapter 3, verses, uh, verse 12. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all men, just as we do for you, to love one another. Fourth, he speaks to them about sanctification. That, that sense of God setting us apart for his use, of living a life of holiness that were usable to him. And here's where he picks it up in chapter 4. Again, it comes up several places in the letter, but especially 4. Finally, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction is how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you may excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, you abstain from sexual immorality. He was cautioning them about this terribly corrupt city. Don't drift back into that. But it doesn't seem to be so much of a problem as he's saying, your whole life is about sanctification, being set apart for God's use. And fifth, he talks to them about enduring with hope as they wait for eternity. We're not real sure of all the questions they had and how much he taught them about end times when he was with them. But Timothy must have brought a question back to Paul that they had. We assume that many of their friends or relatives had died since Paul had left. And they were worried, if Christ is coming back, are they going to miss out? If, if we're here when Christ returns, are we going to get something they don't get? And so Paul answers that question, and he expands a bit on the rapture and the return of Christ. But he's not, here's, this is so important, he's not doing that so they can figure out when Christ is returning. He's teaching them about end times so they live by hope in the midst of the persecution and resistance they have in their city. No matter how things looked, God still keeps his promises. And so he closes chapter 5 with verse 24. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will also bring it to pass. Now think about this. Imagine what these five topics will mean to a new believer who doesn't know what side is up, which is right or left, and what she can trust or not. And the things that Paul has laid out for them, what a, a foundation it would build in their lives. If you look at most discipleship ministries and their materials. They cover pretty similar stuff, and a lot of them use these same things. There may be a different angle, different wording, but it's to establish a person in his relationship with Jesus. Good discipleship is based upon and built upon the foundational truths of what this relationship with Jesus is like, 
and how I function in that. And so it's critically important that as I begin discipleship, this is where I start. And I find, you know what I find so often? I've, so many men would come through these locker rooms where I worked. I find out they'd known Christ 10, 12, 13, 14 years. And I'd ask them how they're doing. And so many of them would say, ah, it's, it's kind of stalled out. I'd say, let's go back to the basics. And we would. And it was like you lit a fire. Because they began to understand, again, the freshness of this relationship we have with Jesus. So what do you do with this? What do you do with this? There's a whole lot packed into today in just a few minutes. Number one, I think it is so healthy for us as older believers, if you've known Christ a while, go back and review those basics. Find what it is that ministry identifies as being so crucial for young believers. You've got much better handle on helping people that enter your life. I, I think if that involves getting a hold of PCL and going through it with Sean or some of the other men, women, being involved in the women's ministry, connecting with other women there who are discipling. Same for men and men's ministries. But review those basics for yourself. Ask a friend to go through one of the series with you. Gra grab a cup of coffee every two or three weeks and say, what are you learning? What makes sense? What questions are you coming up with? Secondly, connect with another disciple maker. I think it's, that's more helpful than a classroom or a dozen books. What do you do? Tell me about the guys you've been discipling. Tell me about the women you've been meeting with because you'll pick up so many things about just kind of the nuts and bolts of meeting with people if you haven't done that before. Uh, I, would tell, I would say, whether it's in my case or those men and women who are already discipling people, we love to meet with people who want to disciple somebody. It, it is so exciting because of the impact in others' lives. Thirdly, I'd ask God to open conversations you have with other people. Ask God to kind of open the antenna a little bit for you to recognize spiritual needs that people have and the things they say. It's amazing when they begin to engage in a spiritual conversation, uh, they become much more transparent. And they think, hey, maybe, maybe here's somebody who can understand what I'm working through right now or what I'm learning. And you'll find so many opportunities to invite them into a study, invite to study something with you or something you're studying with some other people. Uh, I think that those things can be really, really helpful. Let me close with this. I got a text from a guy named Brian Hansen um, last February. And uh, Brian was a punter in the NFL for 16 years. He had, uh, he had spent his three middle years here in Cleveland. And he said, I'm going to be in town in Cleveland for a few days. Could we get together? I knew he was in South Dakota. I'd lost touch with him. He was working with Fellowship Christian Athletes. And so uh, we jumped at it. Now, I had not seen Brian in 28 years. 28 years. Sure enough, he shows up at the house one night, and uh, Joanne and I greet him. We had not even sat down when he said, well, the reason I wanted to get together is I wanted to thank you for my years in Cleveland. I thought, okay. And he said, you know, the things that God had done in my life during that period of time. And we had some really neat couples then, young kids, young families. Well, he went on to say, when I came here, I was, a, I was a believer, he said, and you asked me and two other guys to shoulder more of the ministry in the locker room. And, and, um, and he said, we did. I have to tell you that if I had not done that, I know that I would not have had the courage to go on staff with FCA when I left Pro Ball. That was a, a turning point in my life in doing ministry. And so we talked a little bit 
Uh, and he said, you know, after a year, then asked me to be the state director, and I've been the state director for 25 years now. So we had a wonderful conversation, picking up where we left off and where everybody was that we knew or lost track of. And so after he left, I said to Joanne, I said, you know, I'm not sure I really know what he's talking about yet. What happened in Cleveland in 1991? And so I went to my office and I pulled out a bunch of my notes from that period of three years. At that point in 1991, I had been with the Browns for three years. I mean, 12 years, 12 years. I had to run to the place. I knew the owner, Art Modell, all the way through the organization on a first-name basis. I had a free run of the place. I could come and go whenever I wanted to. I met with coaches in their offices, with players. Um, we had Bible studies, chapels. Joanne had a wonderful Bible study with the women. I, had a, I traveled with the team. I had a key to lock up if I was the last guy out. But we got a new head coach that year that Brian came here, and he cut it all off. He didn't want a ministry on the team. I could go to chapel the night before the game at a hotel. That was it. And we had Bible study in their apartments or homes during the week. And so I must have said to those three guys, this one's on you guys, you're going to have to initiate. You'll have to build the friendships. You'll have to bring guys to things. You'll have to minister the young believers on the team and keep them moving in their faith. And it changed his life. You know what the most exciting thing was for him to talk about that night when we finished? He talked about the coaches that he's discipling now because they want to know how to disciple their student athletes in high school. Who knows where those kids are today after 25 years? You see, when we build into somebody's life in just the simplest way, help them gain that foundation and understanding the Christian life, then it begins to multiply, and that one has courage to go to that one, and that one, to that one, and that one, to that one, and that one, to that one. Now, you just touched a few lives, but it goes like that. Let's pray. Father, you were so good. You've been so good to give us a hand in your ministry. I thank you that you handed it off to us. I thank you for what we've experienced in our walk with you. And Lord, I pray you'd make us men and women of courage that will step into others' lives to help them become grounded in this new faith, that they'd not flounder for years like I did and others have. Lord, that they would be a blessing. Lord, that we would have opportunity not only to encourage, but to push a little bit and to pull them along with us that they might enjoy this walk and a life with you more deeply than they ever imagined. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.